Those are all the announcements. Welcome to More to Life this week. Um, last time, we partnered up with Building Hope, and we talked about feelings, and I talked about what the funk, and maybe, you know, our feelings actually serve a purpose. Maybe that's why we have them. And we looked at kind of the spectrum of emotions, and we talked about that the majority of the basic emotions that we feel as human beings are actually associated with what we call the dark side, right? There was actually one emotion that's considered our basic, one of the seven basic, and that one was good, it was joy. And then there was another one called surprise, which could go either direction. <laughs> it could be like on the good side or the bad side. And then the other five were all associated with the negative side, what we say is negative. Um, the hard side, the difficult side, the dark side. And so we talked about that a little bit. And I just wanted to start off tonight by saying simply, I think we're all in recovery. Whether or not we see it or not, we're all in recovery. And that can back up all the way to, I think, what you were told as a kid or memories or experiences that you had all the way to how you were treated today, right? but you're kind of in that process of recovery. And the way our lives are structured nowadays, sadly, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of space to process those feelings, our emotions, or to experience emotional healing. The way our lives are structured, there's just not a lot of room for that. It's, um, I don't know, I look at my life and I guess, because I'll never compete in one, I look at my life like an endless Ironman competition because I'm never going to really do that. <laughs> but the way my life is structured, the way my days go, the, how busy it feels, how overwhelming it can feel, how exhausting it can feel, sometimes I like to compare it to an Ironman. So if I ever say I've competed in one, I'm just exaggerating the truth. Um, but that's what life can feel like. And with not a lot of room to process those emotions and feelings or to like experience healing, that's why we talked about feelings last time and what the funk. And I, that's why I also talked about um, the dark side. And that's why I talked about especially getting it out. I said that several times last week if you were here. And if you don't understand what that means, I'm going to say it here in just a minute, but i got to take a drink. I don't know what it is lately. This weather is making me dry. <laughs> um, I talked about describing your experience to someone. Talk therapy, right? Man, grabbing a friend, grabbing a confidant, and saying, here's what I experienced. It's almost like telling the trauma. And sometimes the more you tell it, the more you process, and the easier it is to move on. I talked about naming it, or writing it down, finding some sort of way to get it out. I even said, maybe you just have to scream the sound that you feel. Maybe that's a way of expressing it. But getting it out just meant, you express it, whatever it is. And I'm a big fan, and I've said it almost every week now repeatedly, of journaling. I think it's good. I think you should do it often. I would do it daily or even multiple times daily. And the more I've said this, people come up to me and they say, so hang on a second, Phil. So what do I write down, though? That already tells me something about what you're doing. When you say, but what do I write down? You're thinking you might go back at it again and read it. You're thinking maybe someone else will read it. Otherwise, you would just sit down and put the pen to the paper and just go for it. What do you write down? Anything. 
whatever it is. Just start writing. So I would even back up and say this. Change your expectations with the whole thought of journaling or getting it out and just do this. When you go to buy a journal, buy it intentionally knowing that you're going to throw it away when you're done. Or even better, as you write, rip out the pages and trash them right then. <laughs> right? So you don't have to be worried about the content of what you're putting down on the paper or someone else finding it, because I left my journal at a table and I left it and I did kind of panic. I had one of those moments, right? I was like, oh no, I left it behind. There are names in there. There are deeds in there. No, but it was like, <laughs> what, you know, so maybe you write and then when you're done, you shred it, you rip it up, you tear it out, you do something with it. Hopefully, writing, talking, expressing allows you to process some of what you're feeling, some of what you're going through, some of what our lives don't necessarily allow very much anymore. Because we're pretty distracted and pretty busy. I mean, I just listened to a podcast the other day about the importance of boredom and the fact that we're not getting it anymore, <laughs> right? Because the minute you're bored, you do something. We used to have these little gaps and spaces in our lives where you were bored. There was nothing you could do about it. Like, I don't know, I go to high country healthcare. No one here is associated with that company, right? Okay, so over here in Breck, that one, I know. I mean, I schedule an appointment. I show up on time. I do not have an appointment that occurs on time, <laughs> and I certainly don't leave within a normal time frame. I mean, I've been there before, and it's been a long time. And there used to be periods like, maybe you guys were the smart people that brought a book, you know, or something like that. But now, when I sit in the first waiting room, I have my phone, and I can do work, or I can get stuff done, or I can fill the boredom space. And then when I go to the second little, more little waiting room, like, I can still fill that space even more. Like, so sometimes we used to have those gaps and places in our lives where you were able to think about things. Maybe journaling should be this. Imagine journaling doing for your head and heart what sleeping and dreaming does for your mind, right? So when you go to sleep, your mind actually sifts through, sorts, and clears out the clutter and make space in your mind. That's what it's doing. We used to have boredom to do that for us, and now we don't have those spaces. Maybe you can be intentional and create some spaces with journaling, or spaces with friends or other people to help process those things that would have come up for you a little bit more naturally, like even a decade ago, but don't so much anymore. And we've been talking about feelings and those kinds of things and tonight, I want to talk about guilt versus shame. Because when I was looking at feelings, I read a little bit about guilt and shame. And I was talking with Anne about it, and she was like, ooh, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, well, then let's talk about that. Because this will be really fun. So a quick distinction between guilt and shame. Because they're pretty different. Like, just so you know, crucial difference between guilt and shame. Um, I'm guessing eight years ago, I tried to start a little book club. And I say that because I, I came up with this really cool book. It was super cool. Was, the title of the book was Seven, and it was called 
um, an experiential mutiny against excess was the subtitle. And so like I, I talked to people, I invited people, I kind of advertised. I say I tried to do a book club because it, it ended up being pretty lonely. Um, it was me. So the book club was me. I read it. I practiced things. I tried to do things. I tried to get other people encouraged and excited about it. And they were like, nah, nah. Every person that I was able to corner <laughs> and say like, hey, do this, do this book study with me. Come on. It's, it's going to be great. They all had the same response. And they all said this. Whatever I told them about the book and whatever they read online and in the subtitle itself, they said, that book is going to make me feel guilty. That's what they said. My response was, good. <laughs> Maybe that's what we need a little bit of, right? Guilt. So guilt, really quickly. Guilt is the feeling of burden or regret about something you've done wrong or possibly failed, right? So I get it. That doesn't sound fun. Like, there's nothing fun about guilt. But guilt has a purpose. It's got a point. Like, we need guilt. Society especially needs guilt. Like, guilt's that thing that keeps you from repeating those things that you shouldn't do. Right? Like you learn from it and you feel that burden, you feel that regret. Guilt allows you to make amends with people. It allows you to set things right. Like pretty much one of the defining characteristics of what they say a sociopath is, is they lack guilt. Right? So guilt, it's got a purpose. And it's pretty specific and it's focused on an event, a deed, something that happened. Right? So now you shift over to shame. Shame's the real monster, in my opinion. And that's why I say here, enough is enough with shame. Like, shame, it's, it's not so much focused on a deed as much as it's focused on someone's character. Right? It goes a little bit deeper. Shame is linked to feelings of disgust. And it's not so much about the bad thing you did, it's rather flipping it around and saying, that thing you did, you did that because you are bad. So it's going a little bit more personal, a little bit more into who you are. Um, one of, people always say like disgust, I wish I could put this, I, I wanted to do this experiment, but I won't do it. But you should pull this on somebody. Because disgust is a very interesting feeling. And I once read and also listened to something else when they were talking and trying to convey the feeling of disgust. And what they said was simply come up here and they had a person swallow several times. They just swallowed and swallowed and swallowed in front of everyone. And then they had them spit into a cup and then they asked them to swallow the spit. And they watched the person's face. Yeah, and Winston just nailed it. Like he had, that's like disgust. And so you pull that disgust feeling in about a human being or about yourself. That's like shame. Shame is much different than guilt. Much different. Now, shame, like studies have shown that shame doesn't lead us toward action 
that is making amends. It doesn't push us towards that. What shame pushes us towards is to be defensive, and, and we tend to react in ways that say uh, we deny. <laughs> we say it's not true, didn't do that, it's not me. We try and pin it on other people, right? So we pass the buck, or we just try and escape the blame altogether and escape the responsibility of what's been done. That's typically where we go when we experience shame. Biggest key difference between guilt and shame, and this is gonna launch us into what we're really talking about, is self-compassion. Self-compassion, self-love, self-acceptance. The antidote to shame is self-compassion. And I honestly wholeheartedly believe that you and that thing you did, that horrible, awful, nasty thing that you did, no matter what it is, regardless of what you did, you are not an awful, irredeemable human being. There's a fine line there between guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. So self-compassion. I have to say what it isn't first, right? Because we like to define things that way. And I had one friend in mind when I was thinking about self-compassion. And I was like, yeah. So if I told him that he needs to practice self-compassion, what would he say to me? And he would say, ah, self-compassion, all that self-love stuff, that makes you weak. Or that makes you soft, right? <laughs> like, I completely see him sitting across from me playing devil's advocate. So I want to say to you, first of all, it's not something that makes you soft. It's not something that makes you weak. It's not something that makes you lazy. They've done studies and they show that actually self-compassion, behaviors associated with self-acceptance, self-love, self-compassion, those kinds of things, behaviors, eating healthy, exercise, sleeping well, finding ways to cope and manage with your stress. These are behaviors that actually are about self-acceptance and self-compassion. They demonstrate that. Imagine it as like almost like sharpening who you are so you can be the best version of you possible, right? Like that's what self-compassion is pushing you toward, being that best version of you. I always um, imagine it, and I think I've said this before, but it's the oxygen mask on the airplane. I've said that before about self-love. They always tell you, don't mess around with anybody else's oxygen mask until yours is on. Because you have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of other people. Self-compassion isn't making you weak. It's not making you soft. It's sharpening your person, who it is you are. Is that me? I thought it was me. I'm sorry. It's probably Silas. He's laughing back there. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing it's not. The second thing it's not. It's not lying to yourself. I think sometimes people hear self-compassion and what they immediately think like about it is that like you have to just tell yourself that you're okay all the time. Anything about yourself, anything about who you are or anything like that. And it's not lying to yourself. It's not dismissing the challenges or the failures in your life that face you. Instead, self-compassion is exact, exactly the opposite in my opinion. It's saying, nope, I'm gonna face those head on and I'm gonna embrace any of the challenges, any of my failures as a part of being 
human. That's what it is. It's a part of being human. So that's what I'm going to take it as. That's not lying to yourself. That's just facing it dead straight head on. So it's not being soft, being weak, being lazy. It's not dismissing or, or lying to yourself about the challenges and failures that are in your life. Self-compassion, though, also something that it isn't, it's not easy in our culture. So that's the big one. I want you guys to get that. I don't think self-compassion is easy at all in our culture. I think all day long you have endless invitations that pop up your way that say, hey, compare yourself. And I did a talk on this last year, and it's not actually compare yourself. It's contrast yourself. We call it comparison, but it's not. Because we're never trying to find, oh, what do we have in common? You're constantly pointing out what's different. And all day long, you have endless opportunities, invitations to say, all right, how am I different? How am I different? It hits you all the time. Advertising's goal, ultimate goal, do you guys know what it is? Advertising's ultimate goal is to make you discontent and disconnected. Why? So they can sell you something that reconnects you and makes you content. That's like the goal. The goal is to say, hey, no, 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 no. Don't be happy. You'd be happy if you had this, right? We want to reconnect. All the car commercials are the best ones. The car commercials are the best ones. If you watch car commercials back to back to back, it's amazing what cars do for you. You know, like I am blown away every time. I never thought a car would connect me better to the earth, but it does, you know, like it totally does. And it makes my family better. It like brings us together. You know, like it's wild to watch these commercials. That's advertising's goal. And so all day long, you're gonna pick up magazines, you're gonna see ads, you're gonna read posts, you're gonna see pictures, and the majority of them fill you with discontent about your life and who you are. And they try and like, they just make you feel a little bit more disconnected. They just bring that in wave after wave after wave. Honestly, like I haven't been on Facebook that much until this past year. I, was, I didn't really like it, and um, I'm on it a lot now, and Ann notices my mood swings like because of it, but it's funny. We just went like to Phoenix, Arizona, and we were hanging out at this pool, and I started flipping through, and there's a lot of people who were going a lot of places last week, and I was like, eh, we're at this pool. Uh, you know what I mean? And I was completely content to go to this pool before we went. I was like, yes, warmer weather, pool. It's all I need. That's it. But the minute I saw something in comparison, it wasn't good enough anymore. It wasn't enough. I want to read this to you really quickly. This is from that book, Emotional Agility. But this blew my mind, and I think it's true. But she was just talking about a couple of studies, and she said um, men rate themselves as being less in love with their wives or partners after looking at sexy magazine centerfolds. Right? So like they did these studies and they checked it out. It was like, so, and here's the deal. After you looked, you were like, eh, I don't know. 
All right, here's another one. This is great. You might be content living in your tracked house and proud of your husband who teaches special needs children. But you might be less so after running into your old boyfriend who's now a thoracic surgeon who volunteers for Doctors Without Borders and just published his first novel. <laughs> Isn't it true though? It's so true. How crazy is that? I was thinking the other day, if we backed up 20 years, I went to college and there weren't cell phones in everybody's hands. Some of you are in this boat. Some of you like probably have other technological disadvantages, but um, that's when I went. And I can't imagine a life being a student now and going to school all day and be confronted with like your friends and their stories and that kind of self-awareness and comparison game going on. And you used to be able to peace out and go home and kind of turn it off. You can't do that anymore because of Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook. It, it doesn't turn off. Like we used to be able to go to work and you only had to listen to those stories for a while or you had that one person in your life, right? Who's constantly stacking it up against you and geez, and then you could turn it off and you could go home and it's always on now. That comparison game is always on. It's what I like to call death by comparison. That's what I call it. Because it's amazing what it does to you and how you feel our culture of advertising will tell you how you should live your life if you let it. And man, I don't know about you, but what I mostly hear is that I'm not enough and I don't measure up. And all of those feelings creep up on me and I start to feel shame. And believe it or not, it turns into worthlessness. And it doesn't take long sometimes. It's interesting how the, the snowball just rolls and, and gains momentum. Years ago, I went to this conference and I listened to this speaker who was up front. He was awesome. And he was talking about what he said was the ineffable name of the divine, right? So there was this name that couldn't be written and it couldn't be spoken. And he said, if you actually do some work and you trace the roots though, if we were to write it out and if we were to actually speak it, it would sound like a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And I'm sitting at this round table with older people and I heard this guy say that and something clicked inside my brain and inside my heart. And I was like experiencing this mind blown moment. I was like, wait a second. Breathing, it's the first thing you do, right? In and out, when you're born. It's the last thing you do before you pass. Like, it transcends race, gender, borders, languages. Like, it's done the same, and it's almost unconscious, and you do it all the time. And you're telling me that as I breathe in and out, this is the name of the divine. I was like, this is pretty cool. And this is pretty profound. And so I'm sitting at this round table with these older gentlemen and like, I literally burst into tears and I'm like bawling at this table. And um, they're looking at me like I'm a little weird, a little strange and rightfully so. Um, and so one of them says to me, so wait a minute, what, what's up with you? What's up with you? And here's what I said. I go, all right. I, I think that I could wake up and not brush my teeth and sit in my sweats on the couch 
and eat potato chips and watch TV for the rest of my life and I would be enough. And they were like still looking at me even more strange. But in that moment for me, I was like, hang on. Something about me is connected to something divine. There's something sacred about the way I breathe. Are you telling me that like as I live my life, it's almost like one long drawn out like prayer just because I'm breathing, just because I'm here, just because like, and I don't have to do anything. That's pretty cool to me because I don't know if there's anybody else in the room who's like a doer, an earner, an achiever, a person who has to do more and more and more and more and you feel like you're never quite there and then you read a post and you feel like you're really not there and then you get that thing from someone else and you're like, oh, I'll never be there. And it was kind of just stacking up and stacking up against me. Um, I heard this brilliant quote from Julian of Norwich and she was this 14th century mystic and she simply said this, we are not just made by God, we're made of God. I love that. I think it's pretty cool. We're made of God. We're made of the divine. So I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I grew up with the Christian tradition. And, and um, one of the first things, well, the very first thing that's spoken about humanity is that humanity was created in the image and the likeness of the divine. Like, that's the first thing said about humanity. And for me, sitting at that table, listening to that guy talk about breath, listening to that guy say things, made me aware, and it made me say, man, okay, if that's true about me, I, I think I can love myself a little bit more. <laughs> I think I can love myself a little bit better, and I think I can practice some of that self-compassion that I'm in desperate desperate need of. So I just want to tell you guys tonight, you're enough. You don't even have to do anything and you're enough. You're not worthless. And I sure wish you and I both would stop participating in that endless, relentless comparison game. What's deepest in you and what's most true about you is that you're made of God, that you are enough, and then, in fact, you are essential to this story. I genuinely believe, like most of the conflicts, most of the issues, they're the result of us not honoring that sacred part of who you are and who I am. Like, we don't honor it in others, and more importantly, we never honor it in ourselves. There was this woman, um, Simone Wales. She was a philosopher, mystic, political activist, she believes that the universe was brought into being by what she calls essentially the vibration of what you would consider the divine. This is where she goes. And so she looks around at everything and she sees everything as being spoken into existence and possessing that vibration and that sound. I love that idea because I'm a musician and I think it's really cool that like you, in fact, have a voice and that you, in fact, are another expression of sound of the divine in the world and that you are that love, that kind of reverberation out there. And then the question would be, so um, your life is this relentless pursuit of singing the song that's within your heart. It's like 
uncovering that which is deepest in you and like tapping into that song. And then you ask the bigger question, how do we sing in harmony with the people around us? How do we find that kind of chord? How do we honor the sacred center in others and in ourselves? Here's what I want to leave you with. Don't even know what time it is, 6.35. But other than becoming a hermit or smashing every screen you have or never buying another magazine or book or escaping somehow Wi-Fi or never purchasing anything that possesses a signal, how do you not participate in this game of comparison? And how do you live from a truth that says you're enough? You're just enough because you're alive, because you're here, because you breathe in and out. That's your homework to find the answer to that question, because I don't have it. I don't, I don't even know. Like, and if you find it, please text me, call me. I'll still be connected because I'm not going to go into the hermit thing. One piece of advice I can offer you is going to come in the form of two stories that I've seen happen throughout my life since I've been in Summit County. Um, my wife and I used to take students on this trip, and we would go live on a houseboat for nine days. Well, actually seven, but we would drive there. That was the painful part. And driving back in two like huge vans. And you never get even, we get to Vail and someone's like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And it was awful. But what should have been this long of a trip, right, in the car turned into this long. But we would go live on this houseboat. And the first time we went, I knew what was coming. She probably knew what was coming because I told her. But um, a lot of the students and leaders didn't know what was coming on one of these nights. And so we live on two houseboats in close proximity of each other. We sleep on the roofs, and we don't get off all week, man. We're on those boats. This is, this is our home, close proximity. Drama unfolds while we're there. Like people who didn't know people as well get to know people maybe more than they'd like. Like it just kind of goes on. And then one night, we build this bonfire on the shore, and we all sit around the bonfire, and we kind of explain what's going to happen next. One of us, you know, it's one of those cheesy intentional moments where we have this ball. We're like, all right, we're going to take this ball and we're going to throw it around the circle. And um, whoever catches the ball, we want at least three things to be said about that person that like affirm who it is they really are. What's true about them? What's real? What do you admire about them? What's inspirational about them? What is it that they possess that like is like a magnetic quality trait? And then they also put some rules in there, right? So the rules fall into, they, it can't fall outside of the confines of this week. So you can't go back to, oh man, we've lived next door to each other since we were eight. And you've been the best friend ever. You can't go there has to fall to this week that we were on the boats. You also can't do what they call the patch and punch, which is, Dom, man, I didn't know you before this week. I really thought you were a dork. Um, we never hung out because I really didn't like you. But 
now that I've had the chance to be around you this week, you're pretty cool. The patch, the punch and patch, punch and patch, right? You bring them down and then you build them up. Like, so none of that could go on. Now, as we're explaining this, a lot of the leaders are looking at me and I see worry and fear on their faces about how this is going to go down. Like, is this going to be a good thing? What about that one kid on our trip? What about him? It's out of our hands. It's out of our control. Here we go. Boom. Catch it, Dom. So Dom catches the ball. And hands go up around the circle. It's awesome. And we can only take three, three things, right? And then Dom throws it to someone else. And the hands go up. And the ball goes to someone else, and the hands go up. And then the ball gets tossed to that kid that my leaders are worried about. And more hands go up than for anybody else, right? And so we just, you go around this circle, and it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And the students, I mean, as cheesy as you might think it is going into it, and as weird and awkward as it feels, it's refreshing, and it's full of life, and it's powerful. So Ann and I get the cool idea. Hey, that was, that was something, wasn't it? You know, we stay up late when I'm talking. We're like, what else, how do you think we could like, take this like, a step further? And so then we hand out note cards to everybody on all the boats. Let's say there's 20 of us on the trip. You get 19 cards. And you're going to put everybody's name on top of one of those cards. And now you're going to say something. And it can go back. That's fine. It can go backwards in time. It's still not going to be the punch and patch, because we don't dig that. But you're going to write something to everybody on this trip. And then the last day, Ann and I took all of those cards, and we wrap them up, because everybody's asleep on the roof, and we wake up at the butt crack of dawn, and we come downstairs on the houseboat, and we wrap those cards up, and we stick them all over the ceiling of the boat. And they're just kind of hanging there, swirling in the wind, you know? And it's got their name on it. And so everybody wakes up, we wake them all up, and we say, hey, here's the first thing you do today. Before you do anything else, you wake up, you go downstairs, you find your name, you grab those cards, and you sit down in silence, and you read them. I know students that still have those cards. Foley does? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Whenever he's bummed, he still reads them. I know leaders that still have those cards because I'm one of them. I'm telling you what. How in the world can I practice self-compassion? How can I kind of stunt, interrupt, jolt this comparison game? It might be that I need help from other people, and it might be that I need to surround myself with some people who see that deep part of me, who know that deep, most truest part of who I am, and that I'm enough, and that I'm not made by the divine. I'm, I'm made of the divine. It's in me. It's on my lips. It's in my breath. It's a part of who I am. Therefore, I'm enough. And I might have to surround myself with people 
that see that in me call it out and even bring it out of me? I think so. On, on the tail of that whole Shasta thing, which was crazy, I decided I was in charge of this retreat once. And um, I decided that like adults should feel this, right? I was like, man, it's awkward and it's weird, but it's only awkward and weird because it like never happens for us. <laughs> like how often do you really pull someone aside and be like, Drew, I really admire this about you. You know, we don't have a lot of space for that in our lives. More often than not, like if I'm with friends, we're making fun of each other because we think that's like affection somehow, right? We're like, don't, it's just like what we do. So you kind of are taken back a little bit when someone says something that really goes down deep about you and it brings you to a different kind of place. So I was at this retreat and I announced to all these adults that we were going to do something very similar to the, hey, here's all the cards and they're like hanging up and they're spinning. And so what we did was we passed out some blank cards to people and we created envelopes with people's names on them. And we just said, over the course of these two days, we want you to affirm these people. You know, your name's on an envelope and we want you to do this about these people as you experience them on this trip or what you know of them previously. I had a guy pull me aside the night before like we presented everybody with these envelopes and he told me that he was worried. Sorry, this is gonna make me cry every time. This guy, this guy's amazing. He's one of my friends. And he pulled me aside and he goes, Phil, I'm really worried. And I was like, about what? He's like, I don't think anybody's gonna put anything in my envelope. He said, I'm just being honest. He said, like, I don't really feel like there's anything good to be said about me. And I was like, this is unbelievable to me, right? So then we get to the next day, and we have all the envelopes, and we pass them out to everybody. And I'm just watching him, you know? Like, I mean, everybody else is kind of invisible to me at this point. And I'm, like, watching him, and I watch him pull out, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five cards, you know? And he reads them. And he's not really an emotional kind of guy. Like, we're on opposite spectrums, him and me. Um, <laughs> and like, but you could, he's getting all choked up, you know? And he came up to me afterwards and he said, I never, I never would have thought that people could see that in me. I, I never would have dreamed that people could, you know, say those things about me. It was a really cool experience for him. Really cool. Maybe you could find a time to be intentional like that with someone you know. Someone who really sees that in you. Someone who brings it out. Someone who could help call that out. Because for me, when I hear someone else's words, <laughs> or when I'm able to read that from someone else, I can kind of grab a hold of it a little bit more and I can start to believe it about myself. And it allows me to step into that practice of self-compassion and live from that truth that I'm enough, that I'm enough, that it's okay. Maybe it's their ability to see that in you and call that out. And yes, 
I, I guarantee it could probably be awkward. Maybe you do it with your family. Maybe you do it with a group of friends. I've got a group of guys hopefully coming out this June that I'm really good friends with, buddies from college. I'm hoping we do it for each other, you know? And yeah, I think it's gonna be a little weird at first because <laughs> it's pretty awkward when we don't do that ever, it feels like sometimes. But maybe you can be intentional to make that happen. Guilt versus shame. Man, I think we just need to try and erase shame. When I say enough is enough, I'm saying, first of all, like enough shame. And I'm saying enough, you are, is enough. I wanted to say enough, you're enough. Like, you're enough. So, as with every mortal life, now I've got a little kind of hope, prayer, promise here for you at the end. You can just sit back and listen to. You can close your eyes. You can stare up at the ceiling. You can stare straight at me. It's all right. But this is kind of my hope or prayer for you until next time when we get together. But you need to remember we're all in recovery. (laughs) May you come to realize your hidden goodness, that you're made of God, that your breath is your prayer, that the name of the divine is always on your lips, that your blood and bones are sacred. May you then live in that deep truth and honor in others as well as in yourself that which is deepest in you and most true about you, that you're enough, that you're essential because you're made of God and you're alive. Amen. All right, that's the more to life night this time. Next time we get together, I'm rolling the dice again. I don't know what we're talking about. And here's what I would love. If you have a topic or idea that you would like us to talk about, I would love to get that by email or by text or something. Because I promise you, I will delve into it, do some research, dig around, and try and talk about it next time. Because I would love to do that if there's like this idea that floats to the surface here. If there's not, I'm just going to roll the dice. It's going to be good. But um, thank you for being here tonight. Make sure you grab some dessert. And as always, small community, say hey to people, especially those three middle school students back there. Go make them feel uncomfortable and, and like introduce yourself to them, shake their hand or something. They would love it. So anyway, we will see you hopefully next time at More to Life. Thanks for being here.